Hello, Mama. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the seventh season of Marvel by the Month, the podcast that takes you through the history of Marvel Comics one month at a time. In this episode, that month is July 1970. My name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Milne. And mine is Jamie Wenger. Welcome to season seven of Marvel by the Month. Woo! New season. Uh, we have a smoking new theme song, courtesy of Rob and his lovely wife, Barb. Yeah. I, I coaxed her into talking about comics. See, by making her sing. Oh, wow. Works. This is a long con you have going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very labor intensive con. It's very labor intensive. <laughs> That's like how I stopped stuttering as a kid. They're like, yo, if you just sing what you want to say, you won't stutter. I'm like, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. It works for getting uh, wives to talk about comic books, too, apparently. I got to record some very bottom like drums. That was very fun. Yeah. All of it was fun. I mean, all the playing the guitar riffs everything was super fun this, i was blown away version. it's so cool yeah it's great um i i i'm so happy that's our gimmick yeah it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a good excuse for me to to noodle yeah yeah, yeah. not that uh your rick jones songs aren't great but it's also <laughs> really nice to uh, be able to roll something out uh to all of the fans um and, and write my own lyrics and write your own lyrics oh that's yeah. right yeah because roy thomas is he does the work for you and yeah the heavy <laughs> liftings on uncle roy yeah i just yeah. i just speak rick jones speaks through me right yeah. right 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 yeah. you're just a you're just a vessel a vessel for the truth yeah yeah um and and rob you also uh reworked our logo for the seven yeah as we're well. gonna keep doing this we're gonna keep this going as long as we manage to stay alive wow. yeah I didn't think that we would get to having to redo the logo. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I remember talking about this premise of like uh, do updating the song and the logo. And we thought we were really cool and yeah, we had a right, right. beer or two. And then it's happening. Yeah. And now I'm doing it. And it takes a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Future Rob is not probably the biggest fan of past Rob. I yeah. imagine that is a, yeah. a dynamic. Once it's done, though, I'm like, yeah, it's cool and updated. Everybody enjoy. <laughs> right. But so then we, you have to like pay it forward to future Rob again. Be like, yeah. Oh, next time I'm going to get that guy. Yep. 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 <laughs> uh, so yeah, we, we are on our, our third theme song, our second logo um, and our seventh season. Uh, I, it's incredible. Uh, so uh, last season uh, we ended it with Jack Kirby's last years at Marvel uh, before he headed to DC comics to create his fourth world. Um, also created a bunch of other awesome stuff like Commandy, uh, the demon, uh, Omac. Etrigand. I oh, love yeah. you. So good. Um, and uh, this season, season seven, um, is going to end with Stan Lee scripting his final ongoing monthly comic. Um, he's he's still going to be involved in an editorial capacity, but uh, after the season, we will not be reading his words any longer. Do you know off the top of your head what that comic is? You don't uh, have to say it if you want. It is an amazing Spider-Man issue, and I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. It's about two years out. Okay. So, yep. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's kind of bittersweet. We're coming to a point where Marvel's founding fathers uh, are not going to be involved at all with the creation of any of the monthly books. Um, but hey, the season is not just about endings. Um, we're going to be talking about some new characters, uh, some new series and some new creators joining the bullpen. In fact, we've got a new character debuting on this very episode. Um, there's lots of great stuff ahead of us. It all starts here in July of 1970. But before we talk about the Marvel Comics of 1970, we're going to start off with some historical context. Uh, we're going to take a look at some of what was happening in the world of July 1970. So, Rob, take it away. <laughs> All right. On the, <laughs> on the 4th of July 1970, a 19-year-old man was killed by two lions at the Portland Zoo wow. in Oregon. They're opening strong. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a strong season. God bless America. I wouldn't call this a man either. A 19-year-old. 
oh, yeah. person, right. boy. Uh, after he and two companions, they broke into the zoo after closing time, which sounds like a good idea sometimes. <laughs> uh, Roger Adams sat at the edge of the 16 foot deep lion pit, went, then lowered himself over the edge and fell the rest of the way when one of the lions knocked him down. Whoa. Later in the early morning hours before the zoo reopened, an unknown person then shot and killed the two lions named Caesar and Sis in an apparent retaliation for Adam's death. Whoa. Was it Craven? Maybe it was Craven. <sighs> I don't know. I don't think Craven would just do that. I mean, so that's a little too Craven. That is too Craven for Craven. Yeah, for craven. So Craven. <laughs> so Craven. <laughs> Uh, on July 5th, 1970, the radio music countdown show American Top 40 made its debut with Casey Kasem as host, playing the most recent list of top 40 most popular songs as ranked by Billboard magazine. The first song introduced the number 40 seller for the week was Marvin Gaye's recording of The End of Our Road. And the first number one hit was Mama Told Me Not to Come by Three Dog Night. Yeah. Immortalized in Boogie Nights. Yeah, there you go. Um, on the 8th of July, 1970, in what an author described later as the most dramatic reversal in the history of U.S. policy toward Indians, President Nixon sent a special message to Congress asking for legislation that would bring about a new era in which the Indian future is determined by Indian acts and Indian decisions. Hmm. Describing Native Americans as the most deprived and most isolated minority group in our nation, President Nixon proposed a nine-point program. The pro- yeah, the proposal also reversed the longstanding termination of tribes policy of the United States Bureau of Indian Affairs for the cultural assimilation of smaller tribes of American Indians into mainstream society for purposes of reducing federal aid to the tribes as a whole. Mm-hmm. Self-determination among the Indian people can and must be encouraged without the threat of eventual termination, he wrote in his message. What? Which is maybe the kindest thing that Richard Nixon ever said. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's great. Like, oh, I, yeah. it's unbelievable that it came from that administration or person. There yeah. must've been an economic reason somehow. Right. Yeah. Or it was just something where this, I with Nixon, I feel like you always have to think about, it's like, okay, what was he getting for giving this up? You yeah, know, like right. what, cause it was all about the horse trading with that guy. So, um, you know, I guess this is the thing actually, we'll talk about this a little bit further about how this is sort of in the zeitgeist. Mm. Um, but there was definitely, uh, I would say a lot of, uh, pressure, uh, a lot of activist pressure to, um, to change the incredibly terrible ways that, uh, the United States had been dealing with its native American population. So yeah, I was really coming to a head here. Well, nothing to do with that. Um, (laughs) On the 8th of July, 1970, New World Pictures was founded uh, by brothers Roger Corman and Gene Corman, initially as a producer and distributor of low-budget R-rated films. Its first release was Angels Die Hard, (laughs) starring Tom Baker and William Smith, followed by The Student Nurses. Mm -hmm. In the 1970s and 80s, it produced a wide variety of low-budget genre films, including Death Race 2000, Children of the Corn, Chud, and Hellraiser, which are all pretty good. Uh, That that logo makes me scared. Oh, yeah. Yeah, It's it's been deeply programmed. Uh, in 1986, New World acquired Marvel Comics before selling it to financier Ro- Ronald Perlman during a 1989 restructuring. Now, let's be 
clear about this. It was Ronald Perelman. Not, Perelman. Not Ron Perelman. <laughs> no, that would have been Sorry, that was Hellboy did not was buy bad. Marvel Comics. <laughs> I think that would have been better. But I remember at the time there was a lot of confusion um, because I think Perelman at that point was famous for being on the Beauty and the Beast TV drama. Yeah. Um, Oh. And everyone was like, wait, the Beast just bought Marvel Comics? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Good. This this makes perfect sense that I would be confused then. Yeah, um, yep. So Peril, Perelman acquired New World Entertainment in 1990 when it was on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, the second to last movie New World Entertainment produced was 1991's The Punisher, huh. starring Dolph Lundgren and his, uh, you know, butt. His naked, oily body. Uh, and we we talked about that uh, movie on an episode with our friend Jordan Morris. Yeah, that yeah. was a hilarious episode. Yes. That was a good episode. I um, remember that. And in no small part because Jordan was there. Because <laughs> we brought in a ringer. Yeah. Uh, New World Animation produced several Marvel cartoons in the mid-90s, including Fantastic Four, Iron Man, and Spider-Man, as well as the live-action Generation X miniseries. Oh I was so excited for that. I was so excited. I had people over. We made snacks. And yep. We were like, what is happening? <laughs> That's called a sad trombone. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Pretty hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I look forward to getting to the 90s and doing a bonus episode where we can force you to revisit it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Any any day. I'm down for that. Um, in July 9th, 1970, U.S. President Richard Nixon proposed that Congress create the United States Environmental Protection Agency and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. This is a, an odd month for Nixon. Yeah. In his, it's very off-brand. Yeah, it is super <laughs> Nixon, hero. Yeah. Right, right. Friend of the people. He's not just like mass bombing neutral nations. Right, right. Yeah. yeah. He's not a Futurama villain. In his message, message to Congress, Nixon said that the changes would fulfill federal government commitment to the rescue of our natural environment and the preservation of the earth as a place both habitable by and hospitable to man. Yeah. Wow. Weird. I know. We have Nixon to thank for the EPA. And yeah, it's no, uh, it's a yeah. strange resume. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. It's um, that, that's dimension. I, I didn't know about him. Yeah. There you go. Well, that's that's why we do this. Yeah, there we go. They say if you can reach one person. Right? <laughs> yeah. We, we, you can <laughs> drag him onto the studio, into the studio and have him sit at the table next to you. Yeah. And to make him understand the great uh contributions that richard millhouse nixon has given this great nation and the world right yeah insert cricket drop yeah the uh this podcast is being underwritten by the uh, nixon library uh let's see okay well uh on july 10th 1970 private whites only schools opened in the u.s in the early 1960s throughout the deep south as a response to racial integration of public schools lost their tax exemption in a policy change announced by the Internal Revenue Service. Hmm. At the time of the IRS decision, there were about 10,000 such private schools, ranging from kindergartens to colleges, that restricted their admission policies to Caucasian students. The IRS ruled that racially segregated schools were not charitable institutions <laughs> nice try. and were not entitled to avoid payment of income taxes, effectively bringing an end to most of the white private schools. Hmm. Wow. Yep. Uh, well, in other white news, uh, <laughs> on the 16th of July, 1970, the Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks, an all-white national fraternal organization with lodges across the United States, voted overwhelmingly 1,550 to 22 
to continue its prohibition against non-white members. The vote conducted by members raising their hands took place at the closing ceremonies of the Elks National Lodge meeting in San Francisco. In 1971 and 1972, the members would vote against allowing African-Americans and other non-whites before finally electing in 1973 to remove the prohibition. Wow. Yeah. Fourth time's the charm, I guess. Holy moly. My dad was an elk. He was uh, he was an exalted ruler in the elks. Oh, my which goodness. Is like the best guy in the lodge. Like there's a whole hierarchy. fraternal hierarchy thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but my dad is a sweet guy. He's not he's not any more racist than any other white person. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's I guess. An I guess that's the best I can say. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're right, trying. Right. We're all trying. <laughs> in July or on July 29th. Uh, in Delano, Delano, Delano. I think it's. Del- I think it, I, I don't know. I'm Del- from the East Coast. I've guessed Delano, but Delano. Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Yeah, yeah I think uh, that's right. Yeah, right. There you go. In Delano, California, Cesar Chavez, leader of the United Farm Workers, announced the end of the union's five-year-long strike for a fair wage for farm employees, and the halt of a successful worldwide boycott of grapes. The move came as the 26 largest grape growers who combined to produce the majority of the grapes in the U.S. voted to sign a contract with the union and raising the wage of the seasonal farm workers. The contract collapsed within a few weeks. However, when the International Brotherhood of Teamsters were allowed to come to the farms to attempt to organize a union to compete against the UFW and a larger walkout took place in August. That's the that's the most grape news I've ever heard <laughs> by like a factor of a lot. Well, I mean, other than wine related grape news. Yeah, 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 yeah right, yeah. right. Yeah, it's a it's a nice union you have here. It'd be a shame be if something sure. was to happen yeah. to it. Sure, it'd be a shame if they got squished. <laughs> <laughs> OK, uh, wrapping this up on the 30th of July, 1970, film director Christopher Nolan was born in Westminster, London. Nolan's credits include Interstellar, Memento. The Prestige and his trilogy of Nighthawk films. Uh, <laughs> Nighthawk Begins, The Nighthawk, and The Nighthawk Rises. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> I hear good things about the new Nighthawk movie that's out right now. So I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to go see it. Yep. I mean, of course we're going to go see it. I mean, it's a professional obligation. It's, at yeah, this exactly. Point, right? I'm watching right the off. Titans show. I mean, what am I not going to watch that? Come on. <laughs> well, that's some of what was going on in the world of July of 1970. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back to talk about the Marvel Comics of July 1970 right here on Marvel by the Month. For six seasons, we have managed to keep Marvel by the Month an ad-free podcast, Uh, but we're selling out. Uh, Starting this season, we have decided to accept limited sponsorships. So, Rob, who's our sponsor for this episode? Our sponsor for this episode is Grit Publishing Company. Boys, if you are 12 or older, you can sell grit in your spare time for cash profits and free prizes. Many of the more than 30,000 boys selling grit make $1 to $6 weekly in a few hours. That's right. Grit sells easily for 20 cents and you'll make 7 cents profit on every copy you sell. And every copy counts toward a prize. Jamie, tell our listeners about some of them. The prizes that grit salesmen are winning regularly include wristwatches, radios, models, sports equipment, 
bike accessories, camping needs, rods and reels, cameras, games, and many more. You have nothing to lose, and look what you gain. You'll make cash profits, win dandy prizes, receive valuable training operating your own business, which will be helpful to you through the years to come. If you are a boy, 12 or older, mail this coupon today. Thank you to our friends at Grit for sponsoring this podcast. Uh, we are also supported each and every month by our patrons who subscribe at patreon.com slash Marvel by the month. Uh, even though we have started accepting sponsorships from great partners like Grit, our Patreon supporters make it possible for us to continue making Marvel by the month. And everyone who supports us at the $4 a month level gets access to Marvel by the month bonus feed with more than two dozen extended and exclusive bonus episodes. We're going to be talking in depth about the July 1970 issue of Amazing Spider-Man, Avengers, and Fantastic Four in this episode. And the only way to hear about all three of them is to listen to the extended version of this episode on the bonus feed. Every episode we recorded with a guest last season has an extended version in that bonus feed as well. If you want to hear more of our conversations with Mark Evanier, Matt Fraction, Elliot Kalin, Chelsea Kane, Will and Kevin Hines, Tom Brevoort, and so many others, head over to patreon.com slash Marvel by the month and subscribe today. We are also beta testing a Patreon exclusive Slack channel um, because we have jobs that require us to be on screens all day and we hate productivity. <laughs> <laughs> so subscribe at the $4 a month level in March to get in on the beta test of the MBTM message board and waste your time chatting with us and other subscribers when you should be working. Uh, that address one more time is patreon.com slash Marvel by the month to get instant access to our Slack channel and all of our past, present, and future subscriber-exclusive content. All right, welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we are now going to talk about Avengers number 80. The story is called The Coming of Red Wolf. It is written by Roy Thomas. The art is by John Buscema and Tom Palmer. So a uh, little backstory, um, like we were mentioning kind of upfront in our historical context, uh, the Native American civil rights movement, um, it's very much in the zeitgeist when this issue is hitting the stands. Um, I, there had been activist organizations uh, uh, around, you know, for the past decade or so, like the National Indian Youth Council was formed in 1961. The American Indian movement has been active since July 1968 at this point. Um, and th those are just two of many active mm. organizations um, across the country. Um, you know, some of them are kind of affiliated with each other. Some of them are totally separate. Um, it is not a, not necessarily a super formalized thing. Like, for instance, in the African-American civil rights movement, um, there were some kind of larger organizations that really oh, rallied a lot of smaller um, organizations under their umbrella. And, you know, uh, that was not necessarily the case um, with the Native American civil rights movement, um, just because, again, you know, like a lot of the folks who were involved in these were from, you know, disparate parts of the country um, and different backgrounds. Right. And, um, but it was definitely in the public consciousness. Um, and we do we know what was there a trigger? Was there like a big event? Or? I think I, I for what I know, and I, I'm just going to say right up front, like I have done some reading on this and I've done some research, but I am by no means an expert. And there are many people who are way smarter than me uh, who can give you better information here. But I really think a lot of it just had to do with the fact that like civil rights generally was in the news mm. like so much like that. 
there was just this like this post-war idea of we all came together you know to fight this great evil and now we're we come home and we're all being treated like dirt again right um so i mean you know you definitely saw it particularly in the black civil rights movement um but you're seeing things in uh like uh, the Latinx civil rights movement is oh, so it's like a halo effect, point. kind of. Yeah, so it's like everyone is just like basically everyone who America has been stepping on for hundreds of years was sort of like, like excuse uh, me, yeah, yeah, I don't think we need to be putting up with this anymore. Oh, so okay, I this just made me also look up. I knew it was close to the time, but mm. it's a little later. The Little Big Man, Dustin Hoffman movie about Custer. Oh, it's, oh. it sort of dances with wolves. Uh, a a white person raised sure. by the Cheyenne but uh it's supposedly the the only you know surviving non-native person from Custer's last stand oh to tell whoa. the oral history it's my parents my dad and my stepmom showed me this movie when I was really young and it huh. it like changed my mind about yeah, right about how events are portrayed by you know like oh cool you know grade school history <laughs> you're like oh this wasn't a noble endeavor yeah, right <laughs> right right uh, yeah. at any rate that so i mean this is just this came out in december of 1970 oh there so you go yeah it's a little later but mm -hmm. it's still like part yeah. of the site oh absolutely yeah. yeah i mean it was definitely in the popular culture like johnny cash um who you know was kind of conspicuously absent from uh the African-American civil rights movement. Mm. Um, I think in part because he was targeted by the Klan um, early oh. on in his career for um, for being married to a black woman. Oh. Um, but uh, he recorded an entire album in 1964 entitled Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian, uh, which he dedicated to the struggle of Native people. Oh. So, um, and that was, you know, a big seller. Uh, it got a lot of airplay um, and... Uh, yeah, so he was definitely uh, a very vocal advocate. Uh, we talked about Nixon's proclamation at the top of the show. Um, you know, if Nixon's getting in on the act, that there's got to be something going on here. Yeah, that's uh, like when you're when all the parents started joining Facebook. It's like, all right, this is over. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and, and in previous historical context notes, uh, we mentioned the occupation of Alcatraz by several Native American movements and activists right. um, that started in November 1969. So that's very much like, you know, if you factor in production, that probably happened two or three months before they started working on this issue. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, and the occupation would continue through June 1971. So that was a big deal. Um, so, you know, again, like I'm not by any means an expert and I'm not trying to pretend that I am. Um, but these are just a few touchstones to give a sense of what readers at the time might have been aware of as they were reading these uh, Marvel comics. Um and, you know, as we get into talking about this issue, eh, you know, some of it is very much a product of its time. Hasn't aged super well. Mm. Um, we've seen Roy Thomas, you know, struggle <laughs> a little bit with other topics around racial discrimination, gender sure, equality. Sure um, have. Uh, he's going he's going big on this one. He it's, is. He's swinging. It's a big swing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I will say, uh, as awkward as this well-meaning issue might be in spots, uh, it is still better than the cover of Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 79, yeah. which was All on right. the stands the same month that this issue came out. Um, and that cover, uh, I'll just describe it to you so you don't have to go look it up. Mm. Uh, it features Green Lantern tied to a totem pole in a crucifixion pose. Uh, and Green Arrow is standing in the foreground wearing a full on Native American headdress while aiming an arrow at Green Lantern and saying, 
Oh, my redskin brothers find you guilty and I am your executioner. Yikes. Yikes. So uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, it, it had a reputation for being one of the most sophisticated and progressive mainstream comics uh, on the stands at the time. Hmm. And and it's that's a legitimately earned designation, I think. Mm-hmm. But I'm just mentioning that to kind of level set here. It's like so, okay. this is what progressive was in right. 1970. So, so these are two takes from companies basically uh, uh, philosophically across the street from each other. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Cool. That was helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, it is the era of the well-meaning but ultimately clueless white guy. <laughs> oh, when did that uh, end? When yeah, did that I was going to say that, that era is still in full flower. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, you know, like I mentioned, we are doing our best here. Uh, maybe we have already said something uh, that's not as great as it could have been said. Uh, if that's the case, I am sorry. I'm dumb. Uh, I welcome any and all feedback. Uh, I will not get defensive about it. Uh, I will use it to insmarten myself. Nice. So, yeah. yeah, please, please uh, send it along. Please give us corrective uh, <laughs> at any point. Yeah. Give us correction. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So with all that said, let's talk about Avengers number 80. Yeah. So right off the bat, literally first three panels, story opens with a children's rhyme that has not aged super well. Yeah. So... Um, I looked that one up too and found nothing helpful or yeah particularly relevant. Yeah, oh, oh, only that the European version was better <laughs> and like less racist than the American version. <laughs> yeah, which is shocking. I'm I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and then uh, we see this very dramatic scene of a man running through a rainy city. Um, he's almost hit by a thrown tomahawk, um, and then we see Red Wolf and his faithful wolf companion Lobo stalking him. Um, uh. uh Jamie, could you give us a description of uh, of what Red Wolf looks like? Ooh, okay. Well, he is shirtless. He's got some uh, armbands that looked a little a little bit like something Wonder Man might might wear. They're like yellow uh, yellow sort of W shapes going around. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's got the pants um, that Marty wears in Back to the Future Three with like the tassels <laughs> on the side. Like the, those fringed buckskin yeah, trousers. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, definitely some uh, beige moccasins. Yep. Uh, which you also might have been picturing. Uh, holding holding a staff. Uh, there are some feathers coming off his armbands, uh, mm-hmm. and these are all red and yellow. And I think the stick is supposed to be a medicine stick, but I'm not 100 percent on that. Mm, but yeah, mm, yeah, okay, yeah. okay. And um, he's got a tomahawk. Yeah, there's right, right. One arm has the the medicine stick. The other has a tomahawk. And then the 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 bit I was kind of working up to is he's wearing. <laughs> well, there's a necklace. He's got maybe like a, a trio of a necklace. <laughs> really dancing around. Yeah, this. really, really talking around this the yeah. headgear. And he is wearing some headgear. Tell us about his hat. <laughs> it is the head of a wolf. Uh, and so above his eyes is where the nose and eyes of the wolf mask thing are. Right. Uh, so his face is kind of sitting in what would be the open mouth of the wolf. Yes. Yep. Yeah. That's our guy. Yeah. Um, I, I'm assuming he didn't buy that at a store. No, that was not so off the probably rack. like legit yeah. wolf. Yeah. Being. Yep. We'll, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll find out how he got it. Um, oh, right. 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 Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, his, uh, his quarry, uh, Red Wolf's quarry starts shooting at him, uh, but he misses. Um, he knocks down a bystander as he flees from Red Wolf and the bystander turns out to be the vision who once again floats out of his civilian clothes and mask in a very dead man-y way. Um, uh, I can derail this right away. Yeah. Uh, I had thoughts about this. So the fact that it's the vision that finds him is interesting. 
and I've, I am trying not to say things are interesting and to instead say <laughs> more, but like, so this is the Avengers title. It could have been any of the Avengers sure. very easily. There's no plot reason why it couldn't be. So you wouldn't want Captain America stumbling in on the scene because he's America and America and Red Wolf probably they may not. have a difference of perspective. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, Tony Stark is the maker of Weapons of War, so maybe strike there. Goliath looks like a walking threat, and I could see that going south like mm-hmm. pretty immediately. Thor and Quicksilver are like the whitest white to ever white a white white. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. So that probably seems bad. But like Scarlet Witch maybe would have been mm-hmm. like I could see that being a good thing. The the bit that I that I got hung up on is Black Panther seems like the like kind of a great story choice mm-hmm. because I imagine they would have some things to talk about and mm-hmm. it wouldn't be like a conflicty thing necessarily. Yeah. Maybe, but yeah. So I just thought like, so you've got the vision who recently quit the Avengers, but he has, he's neutral. You don't get more neutral than like right. an Android who is not part of a race at right. all. Mm-hmm. He's not even human. Yeah. 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 So I was like, Oh, that was either very intentional or not, or I don't know. That's yeah. Worth- I mean, you could argue that he, sees himself as an outsider but it's much more broad so yeah 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 Yeah. um i mean there's also you know we we knew that when vision walked away last issue i don't think anyone really believed he was actually quitting the avengers because it happened in a very Mm. obvious you know right cliffhangery type way um so Oh, so I maybe mean, it's more Roy, Roy to bring him like, back. Roy's like, I got to bring this guy back somehow. So I I'll mean, give it two pages and then I'll bring him back. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, really yeah. I'll let, let, let everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> worry I'll about. let him stew on that for a month. Right. Um, so, but no, I mean, that's, it's, it's really, it's, it is, um, I think it's a point well taken. Like there's no natural reason for there to be, you know, any sort of, you know, animosity there. Yeah. Um, so like if the decision was made to have it be him because he is the most neutral, then that is interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah, I, let's see, uh, Red Wolf catches up to the man he was chasing. Uh, we learned the guy's name is Jason Birch. Um, uh, Red Wolf is about to throw him down a pit in the street. I wasn't quite sure what this was, but it's a street pit, man. Yeah, it's Manhattan a street, street pit. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. The roads are terrible there. Uh, so <laughs> I've heard it's, it's a city that's awash in poverty well all the government money is going to environmentalism all of a sudden <laughs> it's going to air pollution <laughs> right socialist roads um but uh vision phases in and stops him uh, birch gets away uh vision stuns red wolf by partially solidifying his arm inside of red wolf i think that's the first time he's done that it certainly becomes a vision trope oh. um, or a, a that's a move he pulls a lot later but hmm. can i can i go back just to i know this is derailing this is derailing for not a uh, racially problematic thing. <laughs> well, okay, it's God. just yeah. uh, the vision skin suits. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. We they, we brushed over that pretty quick. Yeah, they they really creep me out. So he's <laughs> he's wearing uh, a coat, and then it's in skin like gloves and a rubberoid mask. Rubberoid. So you just when you see him, <laughs> it's like he's a ghost coming out of a body that just falls, that just crumbles, yeah, just deflates. Yeah. And of course, yeah. that body must look hideous right like it, it must look weirder than than uh the wayans brothers doing the white, <laughs> white girls thing right uh, yeah it's like yeah like like one of 
Buffalo Bill's discarded skin suit. Yeah, it's just, so yeah. I, that just that moment made me shiver thinking about that rubber clothed body thing just fall into the ground. And he yep. doesn't go back for it either. He's on. To, no, you know, he he's just leaves those everywhere. <laughs> yep, <laughs> this is a trail. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that was uh, that was my big Oof. hot take for this issue. Woof! Thanks for uh, <laughs> thanks for bringing us back there. Um, okay, uh, so phasing, phasing somebody, phasing. Yep, uh, he, uh, Vision zaps him with the old arm partially solidified through the chest. Uh, then he picks up Red Wolf, uh, starts to carry him to Avengers Mansion, which he thought he'd never set foot in again after quitting last issue. Um, Okay. Uh, back at the mansion, uh, the Avengers are a house divided. Oh my gosh. This was so silly. Yeah. So, okay. So we have Iron Man who thinks that uh, they're all debating on what they should be doing next as Avengers. Um, Iron Man thinks they should hunt down the group of villains known as Zodiac, uh, who we met a few issues ago. Um, Captain America and Goliath seem to agree with him. Um, but Black Panther uh, thinks that they should prioritize organized crime because he says that's impacting the lives of his students on a daily basis. Oh my God. The virtue signaling of this black Panther guy. Holy smokes. <laughs> Any chance he gets to bring up that he's teaching children. Yep. He, yeah. It's like, Oh, can you pass me a soda? And he's like, that's so funny. You mentioned that. Yeah. My In school. Yeah. My yeah. children also drink soda. Like, yeah. Dude, give it a rest. Well, you know, this is the first actual job he's ever had. <laughs> so he's really proud of <laughs> really it. leaning in. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Skylar Witch agrees that a uh, yeah Black Panther is on the right track. Then Vision shows up with Red Wolf. Um, he regains consciousness and he's looking for a fight, uh, but Cap calms him down. Uh, he says, uh, "Fill us in on what's going on." Uh, so now it's time for a patented Roy Thomas eight-page flashback. Oh my gosh, yeah, it was deep. So uh, we see Red Wolf as a young man. He's growing up on the reservation. He's dealing with racist white tourists as you, you might expect. I think that Roy nails the depiction of racist white tourists. Absolutely. So. <laughs> yeah. Right. That's right. for sure. Yeah. I mean, I can speak to that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Nailed it. Yeah. Um, uh, that night he, he attends the dance of the red wolf, uh, which is a native American ceremony that recounts the story of an ancient supernatural hero named the red wolf who would return when the need of the people was greatest <clears throat> years go by. And as he sees his people taking advantage of by white men, he loses faith in the legend of Red Wolf. Um, and one of those, uh, one of those men, Cornelius Van Lunt, who, if you remember, tried to foreclose on Avengers Mansion a few months ago. In a complicated uh, plot to get them to work construction for him, I yeah. think was the ultimate yep. gambit there. Yep, yep. It's a patented Rube Goldberg uh, <laughs> plot device. Uh, uh, so uh, Cornelius Van uh, Cornelius Van Lunt made his parents an offer for their land that they couldn't refuse, uh, but they did refuse. Um, and so Van Lunt's lackey, Jason Birch, shot up their house that night and killed them. Uh, so in a daze, our hero staggers to a ceremonial site. Uh, he puts on the garb of the Red Wolf dancers he had watched as a boy. So that's where he got his uh, his cool uh, wolf pelt hat. Other other cool points though about uh red wolf uh uh, looks like almost died in vietnam yeah that's kind of lost over yeah yeah you know was a a steel worker high steel worker in new york yep so like he does recount this time between there Mm -hmm. where he's lived a crazy life like of experience and um sort of part of the the world off the res. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. It was a thorough depiction of a life 
after these events. Yeah. So he's just discovered his parents murdered. Um, he he puts on the ceremonial garb of the Red Wolf dancers uh, that he saw as a boy. Um, and then he performs the dance of the Red Wolf by himself. And he has a vision of Red Wolf appearing before him and telling him that he is now Red Wolf. Um, and uh, descending the mountain, he's attacked by a she-wolf and kills her in self-defense, only to learn that she was protecting her cub, which is kind of an ironic thing to happen immediately after his death parents parent. have just been mar- murdered. Uh, yeah, like, I had that thought too, that uh, he like perpetuated a generational violence thing. Yeah, like it's literally the first thing he does. Yeah, yeah, and which is cool in like the Spider-Man responsibility sort of sure. way. I mean, it, this was done too quickly for it to have that impact, but like that, there's a mirror there. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he he does uh, he he adopts the the wolf cub and names it Lobo, um, so yeah uh, so there you go that's how he that's how we got his wolf friend. Uh, Red Wolf returns to New York. Uh, he gets a job as a construction worker to support himself while he searches for Van Lunt and Birch. He learns their whereabouts and pursues Birch. And now we're all caught up. Page 17. <laughs> yeah. We've made it to the start of the story. We made it back to page one. Uh, Avengers. It's so yeah. consistently doing that. At least we had an interesting uh, origin story yeah. in the middle of this. Yeah. Uh, otherwise. This yeah. beats Archon for sure. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. yes. Yeah. It's a step up. Um, uh, so, so Red Wolf is angry with Vision for denying him his vengeance. Um, Vision won't apologize for preventing him from becoming a killer. But he does vow to help Red Wolf bring his enemies to justice. Um, Red Wolf says he is not interested in the white man's justice. Then Iron Man tells him not to start a race riot. So that was, that was my, I thought that you was learned so funny. nothing yeah. from the firebrand yeah, issue yeah. of yeah. Iron Man. Yeah. I mean, you take a drink for a character saying something insensitive. I yes, guess. Yep. Like, it was this so is a, yeah. wrong. I think Roy did a, a good job ish mm-hmm. here. This whole page is as a reflection of earlier when they're talking about what they should do as Avengers. And now they're talking about what they mean as Avengers. Like, what is it? What, what are we here for? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What do we stand for as an organization? What are our priorities in a, in a literal sense? Yeah. And And, that's, and cap leads that. Like, I mean, this is where he like really steps forward and he says, basically it's like, whatever you feel the most conviction toward, you should do that. Mm. Um, so yeah, I got to read this cap mm, quote if you'll uh, yeah, if you'll please, allow. Please. Um, he's he's telling Quicksilver that he missed a point. He said that point is we run around calling ourselves Avengers, yet when this man comes before us with something to avenge a wrong that shrieks to heaven for vengeance, we turn a deaf ear because his cause isn't world shattering enough for us. That's huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, th- I did think you were going to do an American accent with that. So sorry. Yeah. Maybe next time. <laughs> yeah. I'll try. Yeah. No, that, that is, it would have been nice if more of this comic was stuff like that. Yeah. I yeah. I and mean, we get glimpses of it. But. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, uh, T'Challa has, he, he's, he's already made his choice, uh, but he's like, I can take care of this by myself. So he just heads off and, and goes to deal with all of organized crime. Right. You know, like a team. Sure. <laughs> um, Goliath uh, pledges his support to Red Wolf, gives him a giant hug that causes uh, Lobo the wolf to attack him. Uh, and I, my guess is it's because John Buscema clearly realized that there is not going to be any action in this issue unless this happens. Oh, I was wondering <laughs> what was going on there. Like, yeah. I, I didn't know if that was... And also, dogs just sense that Clint Barton is, <laughs> or, yeah, somebody who should be bit. Yep. I I was hoping that that was like a bit of white saviorness or something mm. being manifest. Like he's so clumsily trying to help this person that he's doing 
the wrong thing. Yeah. He is a giant white man. He's like, a giant literally. The giantest white man yeah. that we have in this issue. <laughs> but that might be giving this a little bit more credit than it is perhaps. I, I think, yeah. I think it's it's probably not intended, but it's charitable for you to read that in. <laughs> we're, um, we're adding so much context. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so uh, Vision and Scarlet Witch say they're going to accompany Red Wolf as well. Iron Man, Cap, Thor, and Quicksilver are Team Zodiac. Um, so that's where everyone divides up into their teams. Then Red Wolf, Scarlet Witch, Vision, and Hawkeye get into an Avengers jet. And that's it. That's the issue. Uh, there's sort of like this anemic eff- attempt at a cliffhanger. Yeah. Um, no. With like Vision wondering if he rejoined the Avengers just to see them all go their separate ways for all time. But like, that's not like that's not what happened any of this happened no like Cap and again is, he just he was only gone for two pages the <laughs> right, last right, issue right. so we yeah. i don't think we're gonna fall for that football getting pulled away from us again yeah you know? yeah I, I mean i i have problems with this direction of a team book it's sure. so forcibly setting up like an a story and a b story it's that the are, split the party thing yeah, yeah exactly yeah. so i mean i i get it i see why they're doing it but yeah. it's just like that's not why you you just can't handle all these characters in one place. At yeah. One it's time. like have a smaller team, Roy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. Like uh, we'll, we'll see where this goes. I feel like this is a little bit of a missed opportunity um, for this character, like, which kind of sucks because I feel also like a character's legacy and uh, is, is kind of like established in their first appearance. Like if you give a newly mm. introduced character, a really compelling story, then that really sets them up like black Panther's first appearance where he takes out the entire fantastic four yeah. single-handedly precedent established. Like right. it's just stamped into the side of the story. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like red wolf doesn't really get to do anything. And, and then like the, the story ends with four superheroes going after a corrupt real estate developer. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, like <laughs> one for the books. Yeah. It's not exactly, you know, a, a Galactus, level, level storyline yeah you know, so. yeah i think that might be in addition to just straight racism part of why <laughs> red wolf you know continues to have off and on traction yeah. as, as a character but i was really excited that we we get to yeah. be here for this debut because every time there's just any diversity at all yeah i'm excited right yeah and i still am like sure. every time there's a new character introduced that isn't just made for young me yeah uh-huh. to instantly relate to i'm like thank goodness yeah right. yeah yeah and, and i mean this is marvel's own only their second native american character i mean and the you know first is wyatt wingfoot and we haven't seen him for no it's like months if not years he's still in point. college i guess yeah while, while johnny's out doing johnny stuff trying to <laughs> kill inhumans right yeah yeah so, so maybe it's like a two-step forward one-step cultural appropriation kind of like yeah sandwich. yeah and i mean everything's like any attempt to have any sort of adversity in a marvel comic at this point is going to be vulnerable to that accusation because yeah. it's nothing but white guys doing this stuff mm, at this point right. like you know but at the same time we'll, we'll give credit for the attempt we'll give credit for like at least introducing a more diverse cast of characters um i don't think the origin story feels particularly specific or personal or unique in any way i mean it feels very Kind of, I mean, it's literally his parents are murdered by a white man who wants to take their lands. Like, I mean, it, it's like, yeah, that really hits you over the head. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, Although the some of the 
background, I think, for the time, for 1970, for, for right. white America yeah. to to even just be, I, again, it's part of what's happening in popular culture, but it brings, it paints, and it puts scenery, it, it talks about the reservation, it talks about the the sort of class system that's established so it, it's huh. it's raising some ideas I'm, I'm giving it more credit than no but you're right it's a, it, it's a depiction that's not 100 percent stereotype from howdy duty or or that era of yeah media like it's a yeah it's it's something right. but i uh, i mean i'm i would be happy to to hear from people who were either you know had witnessed this that weren't white guys mm-hmm. that thought either it was like a step in the direction or it was the worst handled yeah. thing or just yeah. what that perspective would be because, you know, I, I can't offer that and I want to know what it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to be three white guys looking back at this from 2022. This is a 52 year old story at this point. You know, oh, wow. we are not in a position to be able to judge it on some of its merits. We can yeah. talk about what it's like for a comic book story, which I think is like, you know, you said anemic. Yep. Um, I, I think it either should have been all origin story or I don't know, it, but the, the stuff on either side of the origin story is just pretty like all the Avengers arguing around a table. It's yeah. just like kill me about something that they could have just said first, we'll about, do this and yeah. then we'll do that. And then we'll do that. It's like a nonsense fake conflict. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think, again, it's also part of a reflection of the whole everyone's trying to figure out how to fill books and move people around and and deal with the fact that there is no art coming in from Jack Kirby at this point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's already there. It's already being printed from whatever he already sent in. And that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Roy was writing what, like five or six other books this month. So, you know, you got to cut him some slack. It just sucks that like. You have John Buscema and you're just having him draw dudes around a table. Like, right. Come on. <laughs> yep. Okay. Uh, well, let's take a break um, and uh, we'll talk about more of the Marvel comics of July 1970 in just a second here on Marvel by the Month. Right. Welcome back to Marvel by the Month. Uh, we have seven more issues and eight more stories to get through. Um, so we are going to do this rapid fire style uh, in a segment we call Marvel by the Minute. It's Marvel by the Minute. Uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. Uh, we are going to go around the table. Um, each of us is going to have one minute to describe each of the issues that remains. Um, Rob, we are going to start things off with you. Um, (laughs) we are going to uh, have you do just the first half of Astonishing Tales number two Um, it is uh, the Kazar story called Frenzy on the 40th Floor written by Roy Thomas, art by Jack Kirby and Sam Granger you just let me know when you're ready never Uh, I'm ready when I when you are, it's only ten pages. I mean, I could probably do this, right? I mean, why even doubt myself? I mean, this one's not complicated. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> All right, ready and go. Okay, frenzy on the fortieth floor. We start with a shirtless but khaki wearing Kazar in a nice uh, hotel lobby. 
everyone's up in arms about um, why he's there and why he's not dressed appropriately. It's like getting kicked out of a golf club. Then um, <laughs> he says he's there to get Craven because Craven stole Zabu. Um, nobody knows what the hell he's talking about. Then Craven shows up in the lobby with a bola net that he throws on Kazar. Uh, it also, I think it shocks him too. Um, and then he uses his nipple blasters to tranquilize <laughs> Kazar and, uh, and then uh, runs off to, uh, he thinks maybe Kazar might be a great prize. Kazar breaks free because he was faking it. Uh, Kazar calls out to Zabu, who has funny mittens on to not uh, <laughs> yeah, scratch anybody. Awesome. Uh, Zabu then starts, breaks free. He gets uh, in a fight with Craven. Um, then they we meet the petrified man. Dang. That, I mean, you did it. <laughs> it takes, it. that was only 10 pages and I didn't even get really to like page eight. Well, right, you're, right. You're, you're working yourself up. You're working sorry, yourself Sorry, sorry, everyone. I The petrified man is really creepy and was worth talking about the whole time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I have a two, two bullet uh, summary of that issue, uh, which is one shirtless blonde man wrestles a mostly uh, shirtless black haired man all over a hotel while a captive tiger watches. Then eventually a well-tressed, stiff-looking purple man appears to pet the tiger and announce something melodramatic. Yep. Whoa, nice. And I, was I should like, take notes too. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, the uh, the second part of this, uh, I'm sure someone else will do that one. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's, that's convoluted. Yeah, that's, oh my God. That's you, Jamie. Uh, the second half of Astonishing Tales number two is a story called Revolution. Uh, it is the Doctor Doom story. Uh, written by Roy Thomas, art by Wally Wood. Uh, are you ready? All right, because oxygenate like in the abyss. Yep. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Okay, go. All right, so we're picking up where we left off afterwards, where Dr. Doom is ordering some troops around, um, and there, <laughs> uh, he's already captured a living android called the Doomsman. Uh, he's uh, in The Doomsman is in prison. Turns out that the Doomsman is Rodolfo, who was uh, also a robot. And then uh, uh, we get a flashback to Doom being crowned the monarch, but Rodolfo was actually the one being crowned, I think. Um, But also Rodolfo (laughs) was uh, taking orders from the faceless one, uh, who's an awesome purple clad person wearing a fishbowl thing. Um, But then there's also like a mummy shaped robot guy who comes out of the water and fights. Um, But there's also a girl, a woman um, who's going to kill Doom, but doesn't uh, at the the last minute. So she's she's cool. And um, but then that the Rodolfo comes back with robot troops to fight Doom. But then Doom fights them. Uh, But this is all being masterminded. Ah. (laughs) <laughs> that was a mess. I, I don't even know if those things happened in this. I issue. don't. I don't know if some of that was factually accurate. <laughs> no, I don't think but, it was. But it is. Yeah, it is kind of what you would take away reading it in the first place. It's it, a. It's a very dense issue. It's crazy. There's yeah. a lot going on here. I don't know I if think anyone the else. Doomsman wants to is that the guy dressed like the mummy. Rudolfo's android was a robot that Doom built a while ago. Right? Yeah, yeah. Who like gained sentience over time? Or, Wait, or, no. The Dooms. I can't tell if the Doomsman is a separate robot. Robot is a separate robot. So yeah, Rodolfo is a robot too, but being controlled by the real Rodolfo. Yes. Who is somewhere else? Yes. But all of this is being masterminded by the faceless the one, faceless who looks one. like Mysterio, looks like a orange mis- and purple Mysterio. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's all done by Wally Wood, and it looks cool. It looks amazing. Yeah, this yeah. looks really good. Too. The story doesn't matter. The art is beautiful. There are a lot of words. Yeah. Okay. I, that was awesome. 
That <laughs> was I was like, there is no hope for you. There's no way you're even going to get to like the third Android. So much fun to watch the yeah. slow motion car wreck. Yeah, it definitely uh, fell apart. Okay, I am going to take us through Captain America number one thirty. Uh, the story is called Up Against the Wall. It's by Stan Lee and Gene Cullen with Dick Ayers. I am putting 60 seconds on the clock, and here I go. Um, so right off the bat, uh, Stan Lee throws uh, Gene Cullen under the bus uh, and says that <laughs> oh, yeah. genial Gene got so wound up in the artwork that he tossed in everything but the kitchen sink. So this is just a prelude to the story that Stan actually wanted to write. Anyway, it starts out with uh, Cap and the Hulk fighting each other for a while. Um, we don't know why. turns out it's a movie uh, that Steve Rogers himself is watching, and he gets bummed out because the kids watching the movie uh, think that Captain America is an old fuddy-duddy. Um, and uh, so then uh, Cap gets on his motorcycle, rides to a sleepy little college town where, of course, there's a giant student protest because this is a Stan Lee comic. <laughs> uh, Captain America busts into the dean's office, that crusty old dean who's hiding from the, the college students, um, and uh, he rescues him on a zip line um, and gets him to safety. Uh, and then um, there's a man with a hood uh, named The Hood, uh, and there's a plot. Oh. I didn't even get to the Batrock Brigade. Damn oh, it. man, there was wow. so much going on in there. Yeah. Yeah. I like how the Batrock Brigade, they get the call to come in. It's Whirlwind, Porcupine, and Batrock. Yep. And 30 seconds later, they burst into the studio. Oh, they, I mean, they were, they were nearby, but they they got into a car, drove a car, parked a car and got in there in 30 seconds. Yeah. So that's the one where Cap was being, he's like, uh, was secretly hired by like a bad guy to say bad things about America. Oh, right. But then didn't when he got on the air. Yeah. Because he's so principled. Yeah. And that's why they came to beat him up. Yeah. Even though they were hired by the guy who. Yeah. It, it, I don't, this story went in a lot of directions. Yeah, there was yeah. a lot in there. Um, good news is you didn't miss anything by not reading it. Uh, okay, Rob. Um, oh, boy. We're going to have you. Good luck uh, navigating Daredevil number 68, Phoenix and the Fighter. Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Written oh, yeah. by Roy Thomas, art by Gene Colan and Sid Shores. Uh, if you like uh, professional amateur makeup application. This is the story for you. <laughs> I, I hope I even get there. <laughs> you have 60 seconds on the clock. Take it away. Okay. Daredevil's back in New York. He's swinging around. He finds out that uh, there's uh, this organization that uh, is run by a guy named Craig who dresses like a pirate sort of. Um, that's called the Phoenix organization that is bought uh, or is paying for a middleweight prize fighter to get into a big boxing match. The prize fighter is also being trained by Matt Murdock's father's trainer. Yeah. And he, uh, so Matt Murdock gets involved and ends up having to um, fill in for the boxer in the big match by putting on a bunch of makeup and then getting in a boxing match. Um, he There's a neural ray involved, which is supposed to make the boxer lose the match. This is all like a shade of, yeah, and, and the neural ray makes the guy blind, um, which, since it's Matt Murdock, doesn't do anything, which has happened before. Uh, <laughs> and then Matt wins, runs off immediately, um, and... Man, now I'm forgetting what happens. There's some more fighting with Crag. Oh. <laughs> oh, that was great. Covered a lot of ground. That was awesome. I got to like page 18 ish. Very good. Yeah. I, I guess he wins. He the wins. end. Yeah, he I wins. should have yeah. just said he wins. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, Jamie, um, it's your turn uh, in the hot seat. All right. Uh, you're going to talk about Incredible Hulk number 132, In the Hands of Hydra. Great. My favorite Rob Zombie song. <laughs> um, in the Hands of Hydra. <laughs> um, it's written by Roy Thomas, art by Herb Trimpey, and John Severin. Are you ready? Yeah, bring it on. All right, go for it. In the last issue, the Hulk and Banner were separated, but ultimately they came back together and the Hulk absorbed Banner. Army captured Hulk, has him chained up. Hulk gets out, smashes Army. Betty's upset uh, because, oh, Army smashes Hulk. Hulk gets knocked out. Uh, the boy who got involved in all this was uh, at the Army base. He leaves. Then he gets picked up by a mysterious ship, which turns out to be Hydra which are convincing him to go back to the army base to get Hulk out uh, so they can use him for nefarious purposes. He goes back to the base. He gets Hulk. Uh, uh, instead of getting Hulk out, he gets Hydra in. Hydra kidnaps the Hulk so they can use him for nefarious purposes. Hulk then Hulk Hulk's out, breaks free. Uh, and then uh, he breaks all their stuff. The army's coming after them. And uh, ultimately, the he beats Hydra. And but Jim is maybe hurt and Hulk's real angry about that. And the general's concerned that the Hulk will smash stuff. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Close enough. Yeah. Yep. The gum really was holding me back on that one. <laughs> I forgot to tuck it behind my molar. I just realized I could not remember one of these issues at all. At all. So just yeah. I just blank. had to start uh, looking at it. <laughs> yeah. In the hopes of trying to give any clue what happened. Oh, I, yeah. I like that Hulk issue, actually. I like I we could have we could have done that one at length. Yeah, sure. maybe. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's solid. I love also the, Severin, man. Yeah, I was going to say, I love it. the combination of yeah. uh, Trimpy and Severin. Like, I, I, I'm a real sucker for it. So, um, OK, uh, well, I'm talking of issues that we don't remember very clearly. Uh, I hardly remember this one at all. Uh, I know that I read it, but it's Iron Man number 30, The Menace of the Monster Master. Uh, it is written by Alan Brodsky. Um, <laughs> the art is by Don Heck and Chick Stone. So Chick Stone giving it a real nice Kirby feel. Um, uh, so uh, here we go. 30, uh, 60 seconds and I'm going for it. Um, so uh, the Iron Man um, is doing a demo um, in front of a bunch of Japanese scientists with uh, showing off all his repulsor powers and things like that. Um and then uh, he's on a boat. Uh, they're on a boat. Some for some reason they're exploring this tropical jungle, uh, and there's a giant like kaiju style uh, dragon monster thing. Um, Iron Man fights the thing, um, and uh, it attacks the boat. Uh, there's some um, East Asian military forces. Uh, and it turns out there is a man inside of the giant kaiju monster. It's a robot, um, and it's the monster man's master. Um, and so uh, then some other stuff happens. Um, <laughs> we wind up going back there. Uh, Iron Man fights the giant monster um, and defeats it, and it turns out to be uh, someone who they were friendly with earlier in the issue for some reason. Torgu! It was Torgu. Torgu. Torgu? Yeah. I don't know what. Uh, yeah, <laughs> there is a lot of also racist stuff uh, in there about 
Japan in yep, general. I kind of glided past Good yeah. job. all of that. Yeah, yeah there was yeah. a there was a plot twist in this one that, but there was no evidence of it being a plot. Like yeah. all of a sudden, it was like, "Well, you didn't realize it was this guy," and you're like, "Who the what?" Yeah, what? think that that was like Scooby Doo would have at least introduced <laughs> that character. <laughs> yeah, yeah, my kid was like, "What the heck?" Yep. Okay, Rob. Oh uh, man, I I've been trying. So while you were doing that, I was trying <laughs> to review cheating. this uh, issue, and I still don't have a clue. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to do it anyway. I, I and I'm get, fine. You get to see your old friend uh, Captain Marvel again. I was uh, so happy about that. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. Roy Thomas uh, will never let <laughs> one of his stories die. Um, so this is Submariner number thirty. Uh, the story is called "Calling Captain Marvel." Um, uh, written by Roy Thomas, art by Sal Buscema and Joe Guadioso, a.k.a. Mike Esposito. 60 seconds on the clock. Take it away. We start with uh, what I dread. Rick Jones with a guitar. <laughs> uh, and uh, he quickly meets Namor, who comes out of the ocean and turns into Captain Marvel. They fight for a while. Namor seems really out of it. He's scared of going into the water. Um, <laughs> then uh, eventually... He crashes out with uh, Rick at this pad he has while he's doing a gig. Um, he reads something about the, the oceans. He uh, starts to remember things. Rick plays a show, gets through about a chorus uh, before Namor goes crazy because he's at the show, I guess. Um, and then some guy named Markham turns out is uh, trying to make a molecular polluter that will ruin the oceans. He doesn't even know how bad this thing is, nope. but he's going to hold people hostage to pay the price. Uh, and that's somehow they messed with Namor at that point uh, earlier. And now Namor is going to stop them with Captain Marvel. And I'm sure they de- that he does. They put the molecular thing in space. <laughs> Perfect. That should be how you end every rock show from now on. Hmm. <laughs> they put the molecular thing in space. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. You've been great audience. <laughs> Good night. Okay, Jamie. Last Whew. one. Last one. Uh, well, on the bright side is the return of Neil Adams. Yeah. Um, oh boy. Uh, and boy, what a return. Um, <laughs> Neil Adams doing Jack Kirby, though. So, yeah. yeah. Some of it's Neil great. Adams not being able to do Neil Adams. Neil Adams with six panel layouts. Yeah. yeah. Right. So weird. Yeah. So this is Thor number 180. When Gods Go Mad, written by Stan Lee, art by Neil Adams and Joe Sinnott. Um, it's all right, uh, <laughs> if you say so. Uh, 60 seconds on the clock. Go for it. All right. Thor is in Loki's body and Loki is in Thor's body as a result of the uh, uh, Loki thing that he did. Last face time. off. Face off. Yeah, they're face off. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Loki's doing bad stuff in Thor's body to make him look bad. Uh, Odin doesn't really know what's going on and he gets Loki uh, which is actually in Thor's body. Oh man, face swap, that's not fair. Um, so they uh, Odin sentences Loki, really Thor, to Hades. Uh, real or Fake Thor uh, puts hands on Sif and it's gross and uncomfortable. Uh, and Sif ultimately gets the Warriors 3 involved to help uh, free Thor from Hades uh, in Loki's body and then uh, Thor in Loki's body has to go through these trials and there's weird globby stuff on him uh, but he's learning to use magic to to rescue himself and then the Warriors 3 
Uh, uh, I don't know. That uh, are going to Mephisto. Ah, <laughs> oh, you said Mephisto. That was <laughs> that was the only check I had on my list. <laughs> like, if you've got to say Mephisto, you to say Mephisto, and you got it while the bell was still, you know, You're reverberating. Yeah, yeah, reverberating. Yeah. Perfect. Yep. I wanted to make sure I talked about the globules. Yeah, you did. Oh, you got to <laughs> spend more get... time on globules yeah. than Mephisto. <laughs> yeah, Mephisto has this like garden of globules and like each one does something different and horrible. That's yeah. straight out of the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, the Holy yeah. Bibli. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that, that's uh, that's all of the Marvel comics of uh, July 1970. Oh, we, we got through all of them. In a technical we sense. In a technical sense, we did make it to the finish We may line. not have given you the actual information <laughs> that's in the comics, but if you were to read them really fast, <laughs> I mean, read them slow once and then really fast again, you would that's have the same takeaways. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, fellas, the only thing left to do uh, is maybe uh, make some recommendations to our listeners for things that we have read. Uh, that are not Marvel Comics from July of 1970. Um, I will go ahead and lead off. uh, The book that I'm going to recommend is one that I read recently called Matt Baker, The Art of Glamour, um, Mm. edited by Jim Amash and Eric Nolan Wethington. Um, It is published by Tomorrow's Publishing. Um, So I don't know if you, if a lot of people actually know who Matt Baker is. Um, He is a comics creator who should be a household name. Um, he was extremely popular, um, extremely influential golden age artist. He basically defined the good girl art style while he was working. Um, and, uh, he also illustrated the first, uh, picture novel, what we would now call an original graphic novel, um, the very first one, um, which is called it rhymes with lust. It was written by Leslie Walker with our old pal, Arnold Drake. Um, and, uh, but I think most importantly, uh, Baker was the first successful mainstream black comics artist, um, period. Um, and like, I mean, you could, you could put maybe George Harriman who did crazy cat in that category, but, um, Harriman was very fair skinned and most folks at the time did not know he was, uh, African American. So, hmm. uh, but Baker was clearly black and it was a, a known fact, um, with the studios that he worked with. Um, so, uh, and, and this guy was working in the 40s and 50s um, as a, a black artist. Uh, it, like to put that in perspective, we are nine years into Marvel Comics at this point. There have been zero black creators Whoa. so far. Wow. Um, that is about to change. But, um, you know, it just goes to show like how far ahead of his time he was. Um, Baker was also probably gay, um, though. Obviously, he was not out during his lifetime. Um his lifetime was tragically far too short. Uh, he had rheumatic fever as a child, uh, which weakened his heart. Um, he died of a heart attack in 1959 at the age of 37. Oof. So uh, the art of glamour is the most comprehensive resource that I have found so far about Baker's life and work. Um, it contains extensive examples of his art and interviews with as many of his living relatives and peers as the editors could track down. Um, if you are a fan of like Dave Stevens Rocketeer or Adam Hughes or Terry and Rachel Dodson, um, you will absolutely see Baker's influence on their work. Hmm. Um, if you are a fan of comics, period, you really kind of owe it to yourself to learn more about this really, truly remarkable human being. Um, the art of glamour is a really terrific place to start. So nice. I highly recommend it. Poor. Yeah. Well, I can take us in a different direction yes, um this is a it's interesting brian gave me 
um, some Grant Morrison JLA collections. So I'm going to talk about the distinguished competition for me. Oh, wow. Um, these fair. were hasn't happened in a while. weirdly books I didn't read. They were in a little, I mean, I broke up with normal DC superheroes pretty early in the 90s. And this is late 90s. Um, when Superman died, it just broke your heart. <laughs> you couldn't. That, like, that funeral for a friend. Yeah. You know, still I can't get, leave I still myself vulnerable like that again. <laughs> and I have a, I'll, I have more, I've, we we've been on a break, so I've read about two thousand pages of comic books of one sort or another. So I'll have more recommendations, but this is the one that was sticking with me. Cool, um, because I was so excited. It was I, I've read Grant Morrison doing Batman Incorporated and other Batman and Robin stories, mm. which I really like. I like his his take on Batman villains, especially. So this I was like, what is this going to be? Um, it starts really strong. Uh, JLA Volume One. January 1997. This is uh, Grant Morrison, Howard Howard Porter doing the uh, pencils, which I'll talk about in a sec. But <laughs> which was, uh, well, I'll just say it now. It was like that was a hard part for me. He, he's it's like great renderings, very of that era. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of shiny things, mm. lots of glow. It's very like X Force kind of feel. Cool. Um, but it was not it was just not setting well with me uh, as I tried to read these. But so this the story starts. I just want to talk about a couple of the the stories of the JLA volumes. Um, the first one, so strong. It's this group of superpowered beings that just show up and start fixing things like water to the Gobi Desert. Okay. Like they're like, we have the same godlike powers as your justice league but we can we're just going to use them to fix the world <laughs> what a novel premise yeah and so the jla are like questioning hey should we be fixing the world instead of just sort of like punching <laughs> people problems? yeah um <laughs> like or reacting you millionaire know? industrialist batman says no, no, <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah. Stay the course. so it, that that one premise was worth it and that first storyline is is so good mm-hmm. um just because it gets, you know, of course, more complicated and villainous and things. But um, but that premise is something that I've always argued with my brother about. Mm-hmm. You know, we were like, why don't superpowers just I mean, super powered people just fix things instead of just not. Yeah. And that, but the argument is, have you learned nothing from Miracle Man? <laughs> <laughs> nope. Uh, so uh, and then as this is the three volumes go i think they're the volumes in order mm-hmm. volume three gets to an alternate future where dark side rules the earth and that as is, a result of the actions of no not uh, a, it's okay. a unrelated there's and there's some middling stories where it's just obvious that grant morrison is there's a few weird grant morrison things but it's mostly just sort of run-of-the-mill justice league stories okay. but it wraps up with this future dark side thing so cool. I was, they're they're worth looking at just sort of at least the the first and last storylines are great and then the middle storylines are interesting as artifacts of sort of late 90s sort of dc editorial on grant morrison trying to do something cool Uh, Cool. so worth it i'll also say that um as the run goes on uh mark wade starts stepping in for like fill-in runs of like two to three issues at a time um and when i recently reread all this stuff the mark wade stuff holds up so well and those aren't in these collections they're yeah yeah they they skip 
yes. story beats. So oh. you just like go from normal Superman to Superman who's made of energy and wearing a blue and white suit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like, fun. Yeah. So it's just weird to be like, and those events aren't really discussed. It's just like, here we are now. Huh. And Superman has a different power yeah. set. Well, they ha- they happened in like Superman's own book or something yeah. like yeah. that. Yeah. So. Uh, but it's it's well worth uh, just a, a look. And it, it it's so interesting to see 90s superheroes because I know some of Marvel stuff a lot more than this. Mm-hmm. So to see it and then compare it against what we're reading in the in the 60s and yeah. 70s. Oh, that's a fun like, yeah. compare and contrast kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, cool. I will say that like compared to Marvel's, you know, like their Avengers books at the time or their you know, Avenger character books like the JLA is just like head and shoulders above yeah, what yeah. was happening over there. Oh my God. These huh. concepts are so great. And that hurts me so to great. say that. Yeah, yeah I'm sure <laughs> that didn't, that, yeah, that, that didn't come up easily. Yeah. But I'll have some more uh, heady in it, you know, uh, sort of history of comics pieces and some other um, <laughs> when, sort of. When Rob revisits his Mad Balls issues. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> sort of the more offbeat things uh, coming up in other oh, you know, recommendations. I, mean, I, don't think we're, I think our recommendations are just what we're into, right? Is, are they. I haven't really. Are you t- now feeling defensive about your <laughs> yeah. recommendation? Give me one minute. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us what you're reading, Jamie. Yeah. Uh, so this is something I was reading in like drips and drabs, like here and there. And I was like, oh, wait, this is that thing that I love every single time. So I went back to the beginning and been reading it all. It's um, the current incarnation of Spider-Woman, the current Spider-Woman run. Mm-hmm. I think I posted a couple screen grabs. Yeah, of it. yeah. it looked yeah. really compelling. Every time yeah. I read it, I am blown away by at least like a couple pages. It's gorgeous. Uh, Carla Pacheco writing, oh, writes yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. And mm-hmm. uh, man, I'm not exactly sure how to say the name. Is it Per Perez? Do you know? I think so. But I'm um, not I apologize if that is not the way. Um, it, it to me feels like. Do you remember when uh, the now problematic, or I guess also then problematic, Joss Whedon's Astonishing X Men came out? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like the next generation of that style of comics. Like it is, it's equally bombastic and f- like filmic, I guess. For but it's also quippy and fun mm-hmm. and like. Yeah, so it, it's not sparse by any stretch, but like there's something about it that feels stripped down to its essentials. It's um, got like the Jessica Jones kind of wit too. Yeah, about yeah. Um, the characterization is great. Um, the, like strong female cast. It it doesn't like it's feminist in that it has women in it, I guess, or whatever people need to tell themselves. Like mm-hmm. it's just great. Like it's super fun, super funny. Um, a lot of they're doing like. Uh, there's a lot of fun continuity touches along the way if you're like a spider woman reader um yeah and the art the layouts are amazing the art's amazing it's just a ton of fun i highly recommend it nice i will definitely check that out yeah um well that's it for uh for our first episode of the seventh season i hope you enjoyed it um if you would like a little bit more of it subscribe to our patreon for the fantastic price of four bucks a month at patreon.com slash marvel by the month you can get a little bit of exclusive content um, you can also join the beta version of the MBTM message board on Slack when you sign up at the $4 a month level in March. Um, just going to give that a shot. See how that goes. I think it's going to be pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, review us on Apple Podcasts or whatever you're using to listen to us. Uh, if you'd like some free stuff in the mail, 
send us a screenshot of your five-star review to marvelbythemonth at gmail.com. So, and like, because we haven't been putting out new episodes, I've toned down my checking. Oh, good. But uh, since we started recording recently, I started upping my checking again. <laughs> but the number hasn't moved because, you know, there hasn't been new content. Sure. But like, now that there's new content, I'm really hoping that those numbers just 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 little bits few mm. few nice little just, yeah, one review one review makes jammy's yeah. day just get me one a week <laughs> one a week please uh you can find us on instagram at marvel by the month and twitter at marvel btm marvel by the month com has links to our other social channels as well as our shop soon because we have a new logo yeah mm. we will have some new uh logo merch Ooh. you know at the shop i just thought it would be worth plugging that I would like to get some merch. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Fine. Everybody right. loves merch. Okay, sorry. Continue with the end. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Didn't well, need to disrupt your flow. <laughs> and that's all we got for you this week. Um, but uh, hey, it feels great to be back in the studio. Um, and we're going to be doing another one of these next week. So we hope you will join us. Uh, until then, uh, my name is Brian Stratton. Mine is Rob Milne. I'm Jamie Wenger. And we hope you'll stay safe, stay healthy, and stay inside and read comics. Yeah.